Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kev. And me, Rob. And we are here to talk about Star Trek Picard Season 3, Episode 7, Dominion. We are getting closer and closer to no more Picard. Yeah. Where has where's the time gone? It feels perfectly paced to me, Rob. Yeah. I feel like we're on track for a nice smooth glide path to the finish. Not too rushed, not too drawn out. I think they're doing a good job. How about you? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a case of, especially with this most recent episode, we've come back to where we were a couple of episodes ago, where we were at Darkest Before the Dawn. Oh, yeah. And so we've got to that point, they've got out of it, and now they're back into this stage where it's even darker. So you're saying we're expecting a brilliant episode next uh, next week. Look, yeah, I'm not here for a haircut. I'm, <laughs> uh, my expectations are high. I'm going to set it even higher than should be realistic or fair. In Dominion, we have Vatic finally close in on the Titan, but uh, Picard uses his wily planning skills to uh, face her on his terms. They lay a trap in the hallways of the Titan for her. She gets trapped in a force field and forced to reveal her dastardly plan. We finally find out the uh, the origins, the backstory of Vatic. Indeed. And I'm going to call it now. It's Section 31's worst plan yet. <laughs> I'm not one of Section 31's biggest fans. Every time they go, ooh, a Section 31 episode, I go, eh, eh, eh. And this proves that they've just gone, these guys are the worst. They are not good at all. Picard and crew have the upper hand for quite a while, but eventually, thanks to the meddling of Data's brother, Lore, the tables are turned and Vatic ultimately commandeers the titan yes they'd like that they have lost it after racing around for seven episodes they have finally succumbed and the ship is gone the ship is vadix she introduces herself at the end as captain vadix of the titan and that commandeering of a starfleet ship our hero ship by the enemy is the theme that Rob and I have chosen for our episode today. We're going to explore some examples of that in the second half of this episode. But first, Rob, what stood out to you in Dominion? First five minutes, we had another cameo. And welcome back, Tim Russ. It is great yes. to see you. Oh, never been better. I'm going to say it now. We've seen so much Tim Russ in Star Trek over the years, but he has aged like a fine wine. Oh, I think we've talked about Tim Russ's performance and when it comes to Vulcan performances and there's Leonard Nimoy and then Daylight before anybody else. Of course, Ethan Peck is doing an incredible job in Strange New Worlds and I'm very impressed. You know, blown dear old Zachary Quinto away. But Tim Russ has always been on that. Ah, he's okay. He's all right. Oh my gosh. That moment of him transitioning and that smile. The just smile. Ugh. Slowly coming in, I went, wah, chef's kiss. I agree with you. It's hard to beat classic Nimoy, but Tim Russ here is having fun with it. There there are plenty of Vulcans where you can see the actor struggling against the challenge of portraying a Vulcan in a energetic way. And Tim Russ has mastered the craft so much he is batting it around like a ball of yarn. Oh, he is 
swimming in the deep end and he is backstroking his way through this incredible work. And it's the whole double bluff as well. They're going seven of nine, throwing a curve ball and getting that right. And then throwing another curve ball. We didn't expect it to be a curve ball. And then the shift. You know what I caught is that the music lied to us. The music the, did lie. It did brought in. Oh, all man. of the music stings we talked about last week set us up for a deception here this week, where as soon as the Voyager music played, we were like, great, it's fine. The music's telling us what's true no the music was wrong so are you saying terry metallus is a uh is a changeling as well <laughs> he is at least as plotting as a changeling <laughs> yes it was very manipulative after all like the heavy especially last week because every shot of a ship how about that music how about this music and you go okay we'll do it again and everyone goes okay we're safe and secure now the music's playing boom that's what you get. That is some hardcore manipulation right there, which I'm all for. A highlight for me was the sequence of scenes with Jordy and Data and Lore and Jordy pouring his heart out in order to get to Data and Lore playing with him, but then like grudgingly admitting, ooh, that's powerful stuff. It's what the fans have really been waiting for, isn't it? We've had, especially with season one of Picard, it's focused a lot on obviously Patrick Stewart's connection with Brent Spiner and also that relationship between Picard and Data. But really most of the heavy lifting, especially, and that's, and that plays out in the movies as well. But in the, the TV series, it was the double act of Geordie and Data. I know I'm coming from a less well-versed knowledge of it, but it was always that double act and Picard was in the background. So I always felt it a bit disingenuous how they focused so much on Picard's loss. I'm there going, what about Geordie? Geordie mm. was the one mm. who they go on adventures together, scrapes, they go into the holodeck. So to have this moment where you see LeVar really bringing all the LeVar, you know, mm. was amazing. Like him cheering up and going, you made me a better man, a better person, a better father. The loss of you even inspired me. And you're going, wow. Your loss broke me. Your memory put me back together. Beautiful. Again. Beautiful. And ah. out of any other actor that would come across as trite and a bit. Oh, it was borderline. You have to be a fan to buy into it, I feel like. If you have <laughs> If you haven't enjoyed that relationship, at least in the TNG movies, I don't think you're buying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought it. I just, I think because I believe so much in LeVar Burton. I'm not sure if you are a Community fan. Have you ever watched the TV show Community? I've seen an episode or two. I'm not a fan. There's a particular episode where Donald Glover's character has a massive love for LeVar Burton. And Donald Glover's character, Troy, just just wanted a picture of him. He didn't want to meet him because he can't disappoint a picture as he yeah. says in the script, screaming at this one point. And so very much <laughs> the sure relationship with Geordie, I've been reminded going, oh yeah, it's very much Troy and LeVar Burton is very much sure and Geordie. Shaw very much faded into the background this episode. He was not given much to do and what he was given to do was pretty ineffective, I had to say. He got, he got, the, he got the crap beaten out of him. He then, got stomped. Yeah. After he came onto the bridge and collapsed on the floor, one of the heavies like vaporize a Starfleet officer and for a second, I thought it was Shaw yeah, who yeah, had yeah. just bought it but he was still writhing around on the floor there is so much love for sure going online at the moment yeah. and so much people demanding a, a legacy or a titan series with Shaw and seven of nine but yeah it all seems lost there was a little bit of interesting stuff with jack hitting on sydney and reading yeah and so this is a development where we come into a bit more of what's going on with jack we haven't found out everything 
That was the big I, cliffhanger. The biggest thing that's bothering me about Jack is that his eyes keep glowing red and nobody notices. <laughs> I I assume now that that red glow is metaphorical. Uh, yeah. It is there as a signal to us, the audience, but it is not meant to be taken literally. Do not take it literally, no. But now he can get inside people's minds and manipulate yeah. their body, which is a whole new We're thing. still hearing the occasional whisper in his head as well, but I think they've pulled way back on that because any more would probably be tipping their hand of yeah. what the ultimate reveal is going to be and it feels like we're right on the precipice of it here at the end of this episode. Well that's the big cliffhanger isn't it? You know Vadix yeah. pretty much saying let's have a look at what this Jack Crush is all about. But the whispers we're hearing are still saying connect us, yeah. bring us together and that along with him being able to now read people's minds and even get inside of Sydney's body to remote control her in a fight, which I have to say, that was like pure genre nonsense, but I was here for it. It made for a fun fight scene. And we don't get many fun hand-to-hand fight scenes in Star Trek anymore that give us something we haven't seen before. Kudos to the creators for finding that. I enjoyed it. I tried to tone down on my Kevin Yank trying to explain it with their going, well, he's picked up the gun and he's firing. So is he firing as well so that Sydney fires and yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And sometimes he's facing the same way as her and sometimes he's mirroring her and it, it doesn't quite work, but that's okay. It, it was enjoyable. It looked kind of cool. Yeah. I don't know where this season is going. And I'm, I have to say, I'm really getting worried that ultimately this reveal of who is the big bad behind the big bad, like who's Vadic's boss. I am really worried. That's going to be disappointing. <laughs> What's going on with Jack? Probably two sides of the same coin. Yes. And I am like thinking of what we're seeing from Jack. The only thing that it connects to in my mind is something like the Borg. And season two, as we know, ended with quite a change for the Borg. We're told the old Borg are still out there somewhere, but now there's Allison Pills Borg that are guarding this portal into who knows where. And they told us somewhat incredibly that was being dropped as a storyline after season two. We may come back to it someday, but that's not what season three is about. But the more we get of these whispers and that What's wrong with Jack is similar to what's wrong with Picard and his brain, and maybe that was connected to his assimilation by the Borg. I can't help but suspect that they're trying to pull one over on us, and where this is all going is connecting back to the Borg. Yep, and I would be there going, oh, I think you're reading too much into it, but we were manipulated by a piece of music today. Mm. Yep, Metallus is doing everything in his power to play us like an old fiddle. Not that I dislike the Borg, but I just feel like we have been to that plenty of times so far in this TV series. Yes. It would be nice to find something new as a launching point for the future of the franchise. Look, to to paraphrase the Simpsons gag about the original cast Star Trek movies, Star Trek 20, so very tired. And it's all the... <laughs> <laughs> and it's all animated fat versions of everyone who goes, Klingons on the starboard bow, Captain. And yeah. Kirk goes, ah, again with the Klingons. <laughs> so, yeah, we know Jack belongs somewhere and it would be so much better to show you than just to tell you where it is. And that, Jack, it is time for you to find out who you truly are. I hope in the first 30 seconds of next week's episode... We find out that the veil is lifted and we get to deal with the consequences. He's a Borg. He's a Borg right there. <laughs> Figured out. Join, reconnect we'll with the Borg. 
But besides like Vatic being scared of her mysterious boss, she had a lot to do this episode. Very I feel like so. this was the showcase for Amanda Plummer's acting. We got tons of like close-up face acting and long monologues and her explaining her motivation. How did you how did you respond to all that? Right? Oh yeah. And there's some classic Amanda Plummer stuff in there. I don't I haven't mentioned it before, which I can't believe. Amanda Plummer is phenomenal in pretty much one of the only two good Mike Myers movies. So I married an axe murderer. She, oh, wow. she is in that and she is. Is she the titular axe murderer? Well, spoilers up ahead. So it would be a spoiler so, to tell. So I don't know how invested you are in seeing it, but he marries this woman and they fall in love. But then Mike Myers starts to find out that she's got all these potential ex-husbands who have disappeared and possibly gone in mysterious circumstances. And Amanda Plummer plays the oddball sister. And then right at the end, you find out it's the sister who's killing all the... Uh, Unbelievable that Amanda the... Plummer could be the secret murderer. And as she does all the extreme Amanda Plummer stuff, but set in a Mike Myers comedy. So right. all the stuff that she does hardcore in, whether it be Star Trek or in Pulp Fiction, here it's cranked up to the ridiculous level. So there was a little bit moments of that. There's a line she goes where TikTok goes the clock. Can't um, you hear that? Tick tock, tick tock goes the ancient clock. We're out of time. Yes. And that loved room, it. That room, yeah, beautiful, incredible. That has reminiscence of a scene in Hunger Games, Catching Fire, the second one where she appears there and she figures out that the Hunger Games arena is a clock. And she goes, mm. tick tock, tick tock goes the clock. And so it very much oh, wow. connected me to that. And so when I saw her doing that, I saw. 150 different variation performances of Amanda Plummer, and it's just incredible. Apart from all of that, which I agree with, I'm just tickled anytime Star Trek uses the word ancient to refer to our present day. <laughs> the idea that a clock would go tick-tock is ancient. Well, yeah, they did it all the time in Voyager. They did the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, this ancient old, Earth. Yeah, ancient Earth or this antique. And, and I'm there going... This, it's only a couple of hundred years ago. We don't refer to like the Elizabethan era as ancient. Stone age. It's stone knives and bearskins, Rob Lloyd. The future in Star Trek has sort of like condensed ancient is ancient Egypt, ancient Rome 2000 years ago, not like 500 years ago. Come on. Mm. It's getting cheaper. The term ancient is losing its value. We have the good cop, bad cop routine that is picked early by Vatic and Picard and Crusher do... I think a pretty poor job of attempting to interrogate her. Oh, like, Their opening gambit is, we'll tell you everything we know and everything where we don't know <laughs> and ask you nicely to fill in the blanks for us. It's, yeah, it's quite a bad fall. It was very much exposition for our benefit, I felt like. It was for the audience, just in case you aren't on top of what is the question we needed an answer to? Picard and Crusher are going to recap their half-baked theory, I'm tipping, about what the changelings want with Picard's body yeah. and Jack Crusher. It seems obvious to me that that is at most half what they have figured out. Yeah, it can't be, they can't go on all this trouble just to use the DNA as a key. I think that would be a disappointing thing. And Vatic's reaction seems to sell that. She's like, really? That's what you think? Yeah. Okay. I'm not telling you any different. A lot of focus on the weaponization of a virus. I think Vatic says, your first instinct was to go to genocide. <laughs> what a beautiful twist 
or revisiting of Star Trek history through a very valid lens, but one that I've never heard raised before. That I think us in the audience, right along with Picard here, tell ourselves the story of how Starfleet ultimately did the right thing at the end of the war and saved the day. And they deserve congratulations for being forced to provide the cure for the virus that they they let loose themselves. Yeah, it was lovely to hear the war told through Vatic's point of view. And I think the only part of it that I could like that I personally disagree with is the, that she framed it as we were barely out of the gates of war and your federation turned to genocide. Yeah. And I think I think the genocide cop is right. The barely out of the gates of war, like the, the Dominion was not treading softly. And they were well and truly a couple of years into this conflict yeah. before they went. We had no There was idea. not a lot of restraint from the founders in their approach to the Alpha Quadrant. Look, it's all relative. Sure, two or three years may seem out of the gate as opposed to like the Hundred Years' War or conflicts that rage on for decades and decades. But it's all, yeah, it's all very much perspective. And especially that gives weight, especially within the first time they've found this new variation, Beverly Crush is going, all right, well, let's find a disease. <laughs> yep. <laughs> let's wipe them out. I'm a bit... She flags it out nicely, though. Like she says, I'm a little worried that right now our best plan is a little too close to genocide for my liking. Yeah. And Picard goes, we don't have any other options, so let's just see if this is real or not, and then we'll decide whether to use it. And that's what I've been I've been missing this whole for, yeah, for decades. And it seems like, I don't know about you, but I've been incredibly frustrated since Deep Space Nine finished and Voyager, we've just always been going back. So we had Enterprise go back to the past. We had the reboot of the classic universe with the movies. We had Discovery. We had Strange New Worlds. And we've been crying out as a fan base to going, the world of Star Trek was in such a brilliant place with the Voyager next um, uh, D Space Nine era. We don't, we haven't explored the consequences of that to the world. And even with Picard season one and two, they didn't really do much in the way of explore that. But this is a deep cut. This is a deep exploration of going, history is written by the winners and what how is that history perceived now and maybe maybe it only could be explored decades later now as opposed to if they'd done it straight away it might have still been in that hole we did the right thing yes it is a leap forward or it is moving forward from where we are but i think from where we are is the critical part as well you look at discovery's great leap into the future and as tantalizing as a blank slate that they are so far into the future that there is the context of the past is no longer relevant yeah and they can create anything it's a complete blank slate that did open some tantalizing possibilities hits and misses on the board as a result but what picard is doing here is moving into the future using the past as a springboard. And yes. there's no more poignant example of that than right here at the start of this episode, that the place that the Titan is hiding is in the Chintaka scrapyard, which is the Chintaka system was the site of the most vicious battles of the Dominion War. This is where Nog lost his leg at the siege of AR-558. Yes. It is like immersing ourselves in the recent past and then using that as a springboard to the future rather than just going, okay, sweep the table. We're starting from scratch. 
Yeah, I totally agree. It's great to see that analysis, that reflection, that evaluation of what has happened. But I don't know if that reflective nature would be as effective if they did it in the early noughties, as opposed to now, there seems to be a lot more, so much time has passed and mm. they can look back on it with that realistic eye of what that actually means and reflective going yeah, they did jump to genocide. Was that too soon to, yeah. And was it all just rapidly tied up in a bow in that format of procedural sci-fi television in the late nineties? Project Proteus, I said it was Section 31's worst plan yet. Just to confirm, my understanding is their plan was, we are in a war with the changelings, an implacable, nearly undefeatable foe, and our plan is going to be to capture some of them and make them more dangerous so they can fight for us for some reason. It's a classic hubris of humankind in sci-fi. It goes all the way back to Frankenstein and all that type of stuff of humankind dabbling in powers that they should not when it comes to the world of science. Are they playing gods? All that type of stuff. And that's a clear example of going, yeah, they're trying to weaponize them or take advantage of them. And life finds a way. The prop business in the flashbacks of freezing the little puddles of brown goo and then chiseling them apart or blasting them with a blowtorch. That was all pretty effective for me. I was like, yeah, that looks like it hurts. That looks like evil being done. <laughs> and you kind of allude to it back in Deep Space Nine when Odo describes, and we talked about this before with Ashore describing his situation as in like Quint's scene from Jaws. In Deep Space Nine, he talked about his time, how he was experimented on and because they didn't know what he was or if he could respond. And so he had that traumatic relationship with his, the doctor who, who went through all these procedures with him. And now we see that other end of it where they know what they are and they're just experimenting how far they can push it. So it's interesting to mm. see it for, through that lens of how it was done 25 years ago and how it is done now through a modern eye. Speaking of Odo, there was another like glancing reference to Odo that one of our own had to steal the cure to yes. deliver it to us. And they, again, don't name check him. And it's, I'm wondering that it's starting to feel conspicuous now that they won't say the name Odo. Mm. And I'm wondering, is there an in-universe explanation for that or an out-of-universe explanation for that? Do they have to pay the estate of René Aubergenois residuals if they mention his name? I wonder. Wow. <laughs> That would be an amazing deal if he figured that out. Probably that's why we haven't got any new action figures of Odo. I've been crying out <laughs> to get my Odo action figure. I don't. I think they only released one back in the early days when D Space Nine was first released. Keeps slipping off the shelf, though. Of course, of yeah. course. And nobody wanted to pick up the bucket. I mean, apparently, <laughs> kids just didn't want to buy a bucket for their toys. No. It feels to me like they want to keep Odo in the past. And if they mentioned him by name, it would be pulling him into the present. And for new fans, they would be like, hang on, Odo, who's that? I have to figure that out. And they don't want us to get distracted by Odo. But at the same time, they want to honor him by acknowledging him as a force. So just doing the tip of the hat of going an old friend or a member mm. of our uh, alliance went in and found it. So ultimately the bridge is taken over. I have to say I was like 
especially on second viewing, it is very weird that they do not do anything to protect the ship against that takeover. Like once they are in the turbo lift on the way to the bridge and the people on the bridge are saying, are they going to take the bridge? No way they're taking the bridge. That is the time to deploy the security lockout. Yes, but it's not It's not a full crew. It's only a skeleton crew because most of the crew were transported off on Rolaren's ship. But yeah, it's very much a case of you can see the plot points coming through going, ah, we need to get to the point where the ship's taken over. So all those procedural techniques that a Federation ship would go under, forget that. Yeah. And oh, here we are. Amanda Plum is the captain now. <laughs> Wave, yeah. wave the hands, wave the hands, wave the hands. Here's a cliffhanger and see you next week. Bye-bye. In research for today's episode, I watched a few different examples of ships being taken over. And Riker, I have to say, way back in TNG, was very quick on the security lockout. Like, unfamiliar alien beams onto the bridge and shoots a phaser. Riker is diving to the floor and saying, computer lockout, command functions. There was none of that here on the Titan. And uh, I guess uh, Starfleet is just getting pretty lax in its security measures. Well, it's getting towards Frontier Day, so they're all just focused on that. <laughs> oh, that's how Rome fell. Are you ready to jump into our examples of ship takeovers? Very much so. I've got a TNG and I've got a Voyager. Excellent. Well, I've got a movie and of course I will do that. Oh, well, hit, hit me with a movie. Oh, we're go we're going to go with First Contact. We have talked about First Contact before, but for me, we'll focus on that element of literally the ship is assimilated by the Borg and taken over and that B plot of the movie, it is divided into two sections, which they get that balance quite right of that endearing, cute, funny story of trying to inspire a man to take his place in destiny and history up against the body horror and almost alien-esque sequences of trying to stay alive on the ship. But the whole ship is just taken over from the inside, the wiring, the architecture, the crew all taken over and it's um, a horrifying sequence of going from level to level and locking out and trying to stay alive. But that was my first choice. I instinctively went to the Borg taking over the Enterprise. You'll be able to fill in what letter it is. That was the E, yeah. The Enterprise E. Whenever I think of the ship takeover, the Borg and that, I go straight to one scene. And that is the one where the Borg are taking over the ship deck by deck, but the crew is still on the bridge. And it's that feeling of like warfare in the corridors. And Worf comes on the bridge and he's looking, he's looking shaken. He's got his phaser rifle and he comes to Picard and he basically says, look, we're losing the ship. Yeah. It's time to make the call. And Picard is in denial. He is not going to surrender to the Borg again. And he, he sends Worf back into the belly of the beast. He says, Worf, don't let them take the ship. Go back. And you can see Worf go, what? Um, that order doesn't make sense. Yeah. But he's not going to admit he's afraid. So he, in a beautiful acting turn by Michael Dorn, he takes the order. He prepares himself to go and walk into certain death. And then Lily says, hang on. Let me have a word to Picard in the conference room. And we have the line must be drawn here. So we have we, you broke here. We have you broke your little ships. We have the Captain Ahab speech. It is beautiful. But that pivotal moment of we are losing the ship, but it isn't lost yet. So poignant. And yes. that is what I think of. Obviously, the high point of that movie is that moment of choosing whether we're going to lose the ship or not. Yes. 
And especially for Picard at this point, he would have in any other situation without a doubt go, yep, let's just get off. But because of his connection with the Borg and what that means, and he's felt he has been violated by this species. And he just, like he said, he wants to, it has to stop. No matter, and it's he's thinking irrationally, and he needs the wonderful work of Alfred Woodard just to snap him out of it. Yeah, real good. I'll tell you about my TNG one. Please so this do. is rewinding the clock because it's prior to that movie in the timeline. But this is an episode we talked about recently in connection to Rolaren. It's season six, episode seven, Rascals, the one which starts with a bizarre transporter accident that transforms Picard, Roe, Guinan, and Keiko into their childhood selves. As in O'Brien's Keiko. As in O'Brien's Keiko, yes. What an odd, wonderful collection of uh, characters there. Yeah, they're coming back from some symposium or something, and Picard is super excited about his piece of pottery that he found in the archaeology exhibits. And yeah, they're all nerding out on the shuttle on the way home, and it flies through a distortion of some kind. It breaks up the shuttle, and they get rescued at the last moment by the transporter as kids. And it's never actually really explained where that distortion came from. It's just one of those things. What are you going to do? Freak accident. We're kids now. It's fun to watch the different characters. Picard is in denial. He is, I'm still Picard. I'm a 12-year-old boy, but I'm still Picard. So he leaves sick bay as soon as he can make an excuse and goes to the bridge and starts issuing orders. And watching the crew, even Data, go, really, I'm taking orders from a kid now? Like, <laughs> enjoyable scene. Roe... Roe never got a chance to be a kid and is bound to determine not to have fun. She's like, this is serious. We've had our bodies violated. I am not going to have fun. And Guinan is trying very hard to make Roe had fun. Of course. Guinan, of course, wants to enjoy every minute of it. And in a beautiful seduction scene, Guinan talks Roe into jumping on the bed. And it's great fun. <laughs> it's interesting because... Of the age discrepancy as well, because Guinan is like a timeless, centuries-old being, and yeah. now they're all just converted. They're to... all 12-year-olds. Yeah. Keiko goes home to Miles and is worried about losing her family. She's afraid, and she snuggles up to Miles, and Miles is freaked out. He's like, <laughs> I will not snuggle with a 12-year-old girl. And she's like, Miles, I'm your wife. I need comforting. And then she goes into their daughter, Molly, yes. who wants a bedtime story, and Molly doesn't recognize her. She says, I want my mommy. And Keiko is devastated. Aww. And watching like Miles come around and comfort her and go, I don't know how we're going to figure this out, but we'll figure it out. It is lovely character moments. That ultimately is the heart of this episode. But the plot of this episode is that very inconveniently, as we are dealing with this mystery and the captain of the Enterprise is out of commission, the Enterprise is ambushed by two Klingon bird of praise, who it turns out are being captained by Ferengi. Ferengi board the ship and take over control of the Enterprise. Riker is quick on that security lockout, so the Ferengi can't do anything with the Enterprise. But but there is a Ferengi captain sitting in Picard's ready room, poking at his fish tank, and the ship is effectively commandeered by Ferengi. The fun of this episode then comes from the four childrenized 
crew members plotting how, as children, can we take over this ship? And so they play tricks on the Ferengis with remote control cars and steal hyposprays from the sick bay. And Captain Picard, as a 12-year-old boy, throws a tantrum demanding his daddy, which is Riker, and gets Riker to unlock the schoolroom computer so that Picard can can trap all of the Ferengi with the transporters. There's a lot of Freudian stuff in there. I think, for me, the scene that I remember from this episode about the capture of the ship is ultimately Riker pretends to give in to the Ferengi's demands and the Ferengi captain says great now you will explain to my officer exactly how to unlock and use the computer and Riker sits down and gives the Ferengi first officer a tutorial in how the enterprise computer works and half the words are made up he says okay here are the bilateral kelelacterals and this button is the ferromantle drive don't touch that it's very dangerous and the Ferengi does not want to admit he doesn't understand any of of this he's like don't treat me like an idiot I'm not stupid and Riker goes, oh, of course not. I wouldn't even think. So I think that is a recurring trope that when enemy crews take over a Starfleet ship, often they don't know how to run it very well. Of course. And that is their undoing. Yeah. Kind of like with Star Trek First Contact where we had an A and B plot, but they're literally in different locations. This is where the A and B plot you know, clash. So it's not just yeah. an invasion of the ship. It's the invasion of the ship. Plus we're dealing with the 12 year olds and how the 12 year old versions can actually help solve that problem. So that's a very clever way of doing it. The most economical example of that pattern of the invaders can't run the ship properly is when the Klingons board the enterprise in Star Trek three, and they don't understand that the countdown on the bridge is a self-destruct. And then we get John Larroquette Klingon blown up. Kaboom. Get out of there. You're making me want to watch it again. What are you doing here, Kevin? Mm. (laughs) It does have Christopher Lloyd. It does have Christopher Lloyd. He is so good in that film. (laughs) Get out! Get out out of there! there! What's your second takeover? Well, my second takeover is going to span over a couple of episodes because it is, yes, we have mentioned it a little bit in previous episodes, but it is the taking over of Deep Space Nine during the Dominion War by the Cardassians. How sweet it is. The final episode of season five, barnstorming season, episode 26 of season five, Call to Arms, where um, it's a race to get everything in line, the Dominion. The minefield. The minefield all around. It's locking off the the wormhole and just the oncoming storm of the Dominion. You know, they've been signing non-aggressive treaties here, there, and everywhere. And the Klingons and the Federation are just trying everything in their power at that last-ditch effort of who stays and who goes. The feeling of inevitability. Yes. Of, you can hear the bootsteps coming over the hill. It and, is that. Uh, nothing you do will matter at this point. The invasion is coming, mm. and it's those wonderful, powerful moments where a sci-fi show can connect with reality and the real world. That's when sci-fi is so much a potent form of storytelling. We just go, mm. oh, it's pure escapism. We can connect in with some deeper themes there. And the sacrifice at the end, Jake stays on board and Cisco cannot go back. Rom is there. Who else stays? I have memories of people like crawling through the ventilation shafts and stuff. Who else was there? Kira definitely has to stay and Odo definitely stays. Rom stays. 
and and of course Quark is there and Jake stays to be a reporter and of course Avram becomes an insider. It's a beautiful um, setup where after these five seasons of Starfleet running the station, suddenly they're gone. And what's left behind are the people that were there more or less from the beginning. And we get to see how even without Starfleet there, they are changed. They have become the resistance and they are, they are standing up for what Starfleet created there, even when they're gone. There's something powerful about that, of seeing the impact when Starfleet isn't there to keep it going. And it is that chilling sense of the diplomacy that has to happen where you see at the end of the episode, the representatives of, of the station. So you have Odo, chief of security, you have Akira and you have Quark there quite formal, waiting for the doors to be opened for their invaders to come and take over and go, welcome to your station. And it's a powerful, chilling moment of formality and civility. Yeah, how quiet it is in yes. the end. The, yeah. the, the take over the station isn't in a blaze of phaser fire. It is a quiet greeting at the airlock door. Exactly. And a, a defiant promise with a baseball being left behind on the desk. Yeah, I love it. It's a, this world that we have been connected to, which is the ship which has become this character as the Enterprise has, as Voyager did as well. But it's a different type of feel, you know, as we said, the Enterprise and all that type of stuff are going to new places, whereas the station is this melting pot of species from all over coming and going and arriving. Who's the next guest? A sci-fi version of the love boat. We live with that renewed occupation for a while too. It's not reversed in one episode. No, no. That's the end of season five is mm. where we have left with that for three to six months. And then we come back and they stay with that for about six episodes. So we're right in the heart of Dominion fighting and give and take and who's joining and who's leaving and who's dying. And the ship is in Dominion hands. So this is fully arc-based narrative story structures all over long-form storytelling being introduced into the Star Trek world long before anyone else has. That, that 90s revolution of arc storytelling and long-form storytelling is really on display here in those later years of Deep Space Nine. I wonder if they'll have the courage to do something like that again, where a takeover lasts longer than one episode. Like we've just had Vatic take over the Titan. What's your read of the odds that she will still have control of the Titan by the end of the next episode? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Gone are the days of 26 episodes in a season. We are 10 episodes is seen as, well, gee, that's a lot. So that storytelling is now condensed to a point where she's got the ship and she'll lose it by the end of next episode. I'll be very surprised because we've got eight, we've got three episodes to go. Mm. So if they keep that going for another three episodes, it's all going to be tied to Frontier Day, all that stuff. Yeah. Yes. It's a sad state that television has shifted to the point where, so you can't have those long arcs of. That was six full episodes. That's a fair chunk of the opening chunk of your season is all dedicated to this is the new norm. And you start mm. after six episodes, you're there going, is this going to stay on for the whole season or mm. yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's, a, it's that case of in a lot of these episodes, the invasion happens in one episode and it's gone like with rascals, yep. like with the movie, it happens, but this is, was our safe space for five seasons. And now for the opening six episodes, it is not ours. It's a great, powerful moment of, of unsettled storytelling of what we know. Of course, it's all returned back 
to them in a sacrifice of ages. I'm going to take us for our last stop into Voyager. Voyager at its most uneven. <laughs> pre pre <laughs> seven of nine Voyager. Oh this is, yes. This is the cliffhanger finale of season two. Season two episode twenty six basics and season three episode one basics part two. This is at the height of the Kazon threat during their journey home. This is also Seska's swan song. Yes. So at this point in Voyager history, Seska has been revealed to be a Cardassian spy among the Maquis. She has fled Voyager to join the Kazon. She has stolen and impregnated herself with Chakotay's DNA. That's right. And this episode opens with her sending a distress call of my Kazon lover has discovered that this child is not his and he's going to do something terrible. Chakotay, come and rescue me, please. And Chakotay is understandably suspicious, <laughs> understandably conflicted over whether this is his problem. But as they did in 90s television, at the end of the day, the crew of the Voyager stood up for the innocent child and ran to its rescue straight into a Kazon trap. The Kazon descend on Voyager, take control of it, and immediately land the ship on a primitive planet disembark the crew and fly away. That's right. That's right. And the, like there are big worms or snakes on that planet. There are big worms. There are volcanoes. There are cave people with spears. There's all of the above on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, they strip their communicators straight off their shirts. They are left with literally nothing. It yeah. is. Thus the title, Back to Basics. Back to Basics. Yeah. That is the cliffhanger is we are marooned here with no hope of rescue and we need to make camp, find water, find shelter. Certainly, it doesn't get much grimmer than that. But of course, very much like the skeleton crew left behind on Deep Space Nine, there are a few rays of hope. The Doctor is still on board. A Betazoid crew member, Ensign Suter, who was in a previous story, he was also from the Maquis crew. He was a sociopath who took pleasure from harming others, and he murdered someone on board Voyager. So he starts this episode in solitary confinement in his quarters, trying to redeem himself. He's working with Tuvok to improve himself through mind melds. It's like an early example of what came later with Seven of Nine and that relationship yes. with Tuvok. He's creating a hydroponics bay in his quarters to try and help feed the crew and redeem himself. And he is left behind. He is like pure psychopath. And the Betazoid <laughs> black contact lenses only made it worse. <laughs> But that plays into this story is that like you you find him untrustworthy, but ultimately he helps save the day as as like one of the last two people, including the doctor, left on the ship. He is crawling through the vents. He's using his old Maquis tricks to hide his life signs from the sensors, and they plot to sabotage the ship to spite the, the Kazon crew that is once again trying their darndest to make sense of the ship that they've captured. There's that whole thing of, oh, it broke again. I thought we had fixed that problem. And Seska's the only one that understands what's happening is sabotage. Of course. And the actor is, of course, Brad Dourif, who's uh, ah. the wonderful Brad Dourif, who was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was the of original course. voice of Chucky, done incredible, incredible film work. And yeah, if you can't get Crispin Glover, you get Brad Dourif. <laughs> Not likable, but it's a career. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's made a substantial career being someone who yes. could easily kill you and take joy in it. <laughs> 
So, yeah, the other person who's working for the uh, return of Voyager is Tom Paris. He flies away in a shuttle at the height of the ship battle and is presumed destroyed, but we never quite buy it. He comes back with the cavalry, the Talaxians, who he went and brought back to rescue the ship. And ultimately, the actual time spent with the Kazon running the ship is pretty minimal. A lot of the focus of these episodes is on the planet with the marooned crew. Yeah. What goes on the ship is a pretty small, like psychological drama suitor wrestling with the fact that he had almost healed. He had almost found peace in himself. And now to rescue the ship, he has to kill Kazon. Yes. And his final blaze of glory is he like storms main engineering and kills eight Kazons with phaser blasts and manages to disable the phasers just in time to so that the Talaxians are not destroyed. And he's shot in the back by a Kazon and dies sacrificing himself for the ship. Yeah. Doing what he does best, murdering people. <laughs> if you learn to do something well, do it as best you can. What? No. Yes. Yeah, and that's one where it literally happens. They go, yep, okay, the ship's gone. You've lost it. Yep. That is something, again, that always, I always come, it's like a brick wall that always hits me with Voyager. It's just a case of they had a chance to really learn from the Deep Space Nine element of storytelling where you can do these long arcs that go over, but they just keep on returning back to that reset button of the... Yeah, give them credit for the cliffhanger, but this was post Deep Space Nine or yeah. late Deep Space Nine. I'm not sure exactly where the overlap was, but I think the lesson was truly learned about what was working in Deep Space Nine and where Deep Space Nine went to a season cliffhanger abandoning the station, they did not reverse it first episode back, but Voyager definitely reversed it first straight episode Straight away, back. straight away, go yeah. back. So there's always that case of there's this real sense of doing something different with, okay, Star Trek, where all those infinite possibilities are now limited. Resources, crew members, supplies, all that type of stuff. But they never fully explored it. They always did a hand wave no. of just... The opportunity of all of those characters stranded in that helpless situation, we could have gotten to know them in new ways that we never did before. Yes. But it was so mechanical, plot-driven, the don't go into the cave, you'll get eaten by a lizard. We'll have to cut off our hair in order to start a fire. Like that is the stuff they spend their time yes. with. And they never actually sit around that fire and discover each other as people, helpless without technology. The opportunity that they missed there was incredible. Instead, they created this threat of the primitive culture. They couldn't speak their language and they have to come together in shared struggle against the lava flows. That is the human drama that happens yeah, here. Instead. It's the external. It's the external as opposed yeah. to the internal. I always, that was always the brick wall that I'd hit up against when it came to Voyager. It was so tied into that past of that procedural process of the show when it could have really explored some exciting stuff. The other thing that on repeat viewings does not hold up in basics is just the fact that the Kazon land the ship on the planet in order to disembark the crew. Like you could have just beamed them down. Yeah. But instead, 
they do a whole landing sequence and then a whole takeoff sequence. And it's very dramatic watching Voyager fly off into the sky without our heroes. But none of it is justified. And the landing sequence with the Kazon captain, 30 seconds after commandeering this unfamiliar Starfleet ship, is sitting in the captain's chair calling the shots for the landing of like reverse thrusters and stabilize the environmental systems. Like he knows the landing sequence for Voyager, which makes it all the more unbelievable later on when they are duped because they don't realize that the ship is being sabotaged beneath their feet. It all just does not hold well together. No, it is a case of, yeah, they're on the other side of the galaxy. So that believability of technology, ships, all that type of stuff would be in a completely different possible process. But now it's Similar, but not similar enough. Yeah, it gets a bit murky and they didn't fully commit to what they were venturing into. I'm not necessarily going to recommend a rewatch of Basics for our listeners. I think Rascals would definitely be my pick of my two. You've brought it up twice now and I'm there yeah. going, yeah, it's time to uh, get my Rascals on. <laughs> and if Jean-Luc Picard does go, okay, I'll be very happy. Uh, it's not far off. <laughs> And of course, I highly recommend Call to Arms and then yes. the, the one where they get Deep Space Nine back, which is Sacrifice of Angels, which is, mm. they're two incredible stories. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Rob. It's time to go find out where Jack belongs. Yes, and whether the vines or the roots will connect to him or not. He has a vineyard waiting for him, <laughs> I think, is what we're led to believe. He was not meant for Crusher and Picard. He was meant for Chateau Picard. Exactly, and hopefully he can create a sweeter wine. <laughs> See you around the galaxy, Rob. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>